Spirit of living God, fall fresh now on this preacher. And these, your servants, bought with the blood of our precious brother Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, with the incarnation, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God was established on earth. You see, our Lord acknowledged the Old Testament laws, but Jesus announces the kingdom of God will be governed by one law, love. Love is the law of this new society or this new kingdom or us Christians. So today, my friends, we want to look at eight B attitudes that describe the character of the life of a Christian, or as Jesus calls us, citizens of the kingdom of God. You see, these B attitudes describe the beginning of our faith the process of faith, the perfecting of faith, and the trials of faith. The word blessed or happy designates not just the condition, but also a consciousness. This blessedness is based upon character rather than prosperity or possessions or things we do. This blessedness is applied to those who are members or soon will be members of this new kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. And my brothers and sisters, Christians should possess these principles or attitudes if we're going to properly follow Christ. These eight attitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount are a statement by Jesus of the principles that, that, that make up the new covenant, the new kingdom, this new world order that God has sent his son to establish. So today we begin a series of Jesus' first sermon on the kingdom principles and the character that we Christians should have. Jesus begins his first sermon laying out the purpose and the plan for earth kingdom citizens. We have, we have no wings, but we are called to be messengers of God nonetheless, and to the blessed people, because God, and to bless people because God has so richly blessed us. We're not judges. We're not gatekeepers of the kingdom. We simply introduce people to the Lord of the kingdom, and let the Lord do the Lord's work on an unnamed mountain, somewhere, somewhere, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus begins his sermonic sinai, delivery of the New Testament covenant with instructions to us earth citizens. The contrast between the desolation of Moses in the wilderness on Sinai and the beautiful sunny slopes of Jerusalem couldn't be more contradictory. You see, in Sinai, God came down in majesty, and the clouds hid him from humanity's eyesight. But in Galilee, Jesus sits among his followers as God with us. The first thing we notice is that Jesus delivers his sermon to thousands of people who have gathered to, to, to see and hear what he has already done 
Although chapter 4 talks about miracles, it's important to know before this sermon, before this sermon, no miracle to date had happened except for the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine at a private wedding and then gently disciplines his mother by, because she was pushing him to demonstrate his power too soon. With the exception of this wedding wine, Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, precedes every recorded proof of Christ being the Son of God. To this point, he had healed no blind eyes. He had not even caused people to walk. No demons had been cast out. But yet, people heard that this powerful new rabbi taught with such profoundness. Jesus sits on the mountain hillside and simply preaches to the multitude. But this isn't just any sermon. This sermon is meant to create a set of paradoxes between the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh. These eight Beatitudes launch Christ's instruction manual meant to tear away the foolish illusion that God sent his son into the earth to establish the kingdom and that kingdom would be to kick the Roman soldiers and Roman government out of Jerusalem. This sermon is meant to separate the earthly warriors from the earth's kingdom citizens. Jesus makes a distinction of those who desire to rule and be God from those who desire to serve God. Jesus sits down and begins to teach and preach to his 12 new followers. The word had got around about the teachings of this new rabbi. A crowd then gathered to listen to the instructions. The crowd had to include the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees and the scribes, all coming to the front of the crowd because they, they thought of themselves as blessed and they thought that they should be first. Likely, they in the back, probably not wanting to be seen, were the common poor people or people who had been broken. This sermon must have been like cold water thrown on the face of a fiery, revolting rebels who believed themselves to be keepers of the things of God. The first words of this sermon were, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that if life had dealt you a horrible hand and you were wondering where was God and you were back with your head bowed down, and the new rabbi says, you are blessed. Jesus decides that the poverty of the Spirit is the best way to lay his foundation. He's not talking about those who are materially materially poor. He's talking about those who realize the poverty of life without a spiritual connection with God. Jesus is looking for those who are begging for a closer walk with his Father, who feel a sense of spiritual emptiness without God's presence in their life. He's looking for people who desire to give to God all that God requires of them to live a life for God. 
He's looking for those who, like Paul, absence, who says absence of righteousness. He said, you know, all that I do, I do it in spite of all the wretched person that I am. It's hard to follow all of the instructions in the Bible. But friends, we cannot take parts of it and leave other parts of it because we don't like what it says. Our relationship with the Almighty God thunders throughout the Scriptures. We can't treat the Bible like fast food where we can have it our way or a Chinese restaurant where you can have one item from column B and two items from column A. We have to do as Ezekiel did and eat the whole book, read the entirety of Scripture. So Jesus begins his portrait of earth's citizens of the kingdom with a clear consciousness of want and sin. All the rest of the morality is built on this sure foundation. It's the root of all that is heavenly and divine in character. Jesus wants us to know that at a foundation of self-reliance, it must be completely torn down. All thoughts that you can make it on your own by God must be evacuated. All thoughts of you can pour yourself up by your own bootstrings must be did away with and allow God to enter our lives and deal with the broken places that he finds there. It's important to note that each beatitude springs forth from the last. All of them are intertwined like a blanket of grace around God's people. The second one is tough to comprehend unless you view it in the light of the first. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be confident. We never equate sorrow with being blessed. So what is Jesus talking about? How can sorrow bring anything but, but grief and pain? This is the very reason why the Bible must always be read in context. See, we love to tear pages out of the Scripture and sayings and don't read the whole thing. Here, here, here's one. The money is the root of all evil. But the Bible does not say that. It says the love of money above the love of God. Anything that you love more than God, that's the root of evil. Here's another one. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. And if we lose our job or we lose someone that's close to us or, or we, 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 we lose our home or our mortgage or our basement is flooded with a hundred-year flood, we say that this is somehow a part of God's divine plan for us. But that's not what this scripture means. It simply means whatever your circumstances, good or bad, God is still hanging in there with you, encouraging you and allowing you to press on no matter what earth throws at you. Our happy ending may not be finding a new job or buying a new house, but it does mean that our ultimate happiness can only be found in God and not things. So how can sorrow be a blessing? To understand it, we have to go back to the first beatitude because this one flows from it. Our sorrow arises when we acknowledge the sin that leads us to the poverty 
of spirit. See, if we're not careful, sin will take you away from the route that God wants you to travel and put you on a road that you have decided that you have earned to travel. And the minute you decide to leave God and strike out on your own, that's the moment that you began to lose your spiritual connection with God. And those are the people that Jesus is saying, when they realize that they have strayed way too far from God. Circumstances has caused them to get away from the umbrella of God's relationship. But when they turn from their wicked ways and turn back to God, Jesus says, don't let this devastate you because I'm here to comfort you. Jesus moves us on to the first of earth's kingdom citizens' social virtues. The third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Friends, most of us struggle. I struggle with this one. I struggled with this one my entire life. Born on the streets of East St. Louis where you had to be tough or appeared to be tough, there's no way that I could even show anything that looked like weakness. But then I discovered, my brothers and sisters, that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humbling ourselves before an awesome God and realizing that God has what we need to make it even in a gang-ridden city like East St. Louis. But remember, each beatitude flows from its predecessor. Follow me. Meekness is the natural disposition of God's people whose poverty of the spirit and subsequent sorrow causes them to embrace a spirit of meekness. If we know the depth of our own disobedient heart, we won't be so quick to judge others because we will be too busy trying to get God to help us deal with our own problems. And what does our meekness get us? I can tell you what it does not get us. It doesn't get us a, a, a whole lot of real estate. The earth we inherited is not land but a wide open field for a worldwide service to the one who will one day allow the saints to reign with him in his future kingdom. And the Bible says that's when you'll hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servants. You see, serving God with meekness of the Spirit simply says, I'm humble enough to allow God to point out my weaknesses. I'm humble enough to say that I need God's Spirit thundering in my life. The fourth beatitude covers another of Christian social virtues. Bless are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus uses energetic metaphors like hunger and thirst to emphasize the need for a passionate desire for true nourishment of God's Holy Spirit. And what is righteousness but conformity to the will? All people hunger and thirst. I do. And the world is full of things to hunger and thirst for. There's that new Tesla that I keep trying to put out of my mind. There's lust, unblessed desires, greedy appetites. Ask the prodigal son who ended up dieting, dieting on pig fodder. 
he was miserable and disgusted with himself. And when he came to his senses and realized that he was not what God desired for him, he was meant to live a righteous life on a higher plane. He realized that he was meant to live a lofty life, salted by the aspirations of a God-centered heart that seeks to live according to the will of God. My brothers and sisters, sin will lead us from the places where God wants us to be. That's why we are told it's a straight and narrow way because it's very easy to be knocked off the path. And if we don't turn to God and humble ourselves and allow God to bring us back to where God wants us to be, we will be delivering, living beneath where God wants us to be. God quenches that. God has no choice but to respond when he sees that we're trying our hardest to be what God called us to be. There's another virtue of earth's kingdom citizens in this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This heaven-sent grace is more than meekness. Meekness provokes negative opposition, but mercy has nothing to do with the conduct of anybody except you. Mercy is really love exercised toward the needy and those who don't even deserve your mercy. Mercy embraces pity, charity, and benevolence and expresses itself in unselfish acts, in comforting words to stand with those, to stand in the moccasins or the shoes of another person who's having a hard time. Mercy exudes a sweet aroma of God's presence. We Christians are called to express mercy wherever we are because we have been the recipients of God's mercy. My brothers and sisters, in the last one, the next one is we hunger for righteousness, which manifests itself in meekness, which leads to genuine love for people. Our mercy is a reflection of God's mercy. God's mercy should be the measuring rod for the depth of our own mercy toward each other and other people. Friends of God, we can't show mercy if we've never known mercy. If we can't show mercy, our prayer should be, take me back, dear Lord. Take me back to where I first found you. If we detach the next beatitude from the rest, we end up with very little blessedness. Because Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, purification is a process. Some, something has to happen for a heart to start on the road of becoming pure. What happened? We, go back to the beginning. It begins with the poverty of the spirit, followed by sorrow over sin, a hunger for righteousness, a desire to be humble and merciful like God. The whole cleansing process it's God's way of sanitizing his sinful servants. God is taking us somewhere to a higher plane, a place of perfection. Jesus wants us to know that our baptism was only the beginning of the sanctification process. Christian perfection 
is a lifelong process. It is a process that John Wesley took seriously. You see, he took seriously Jesus' message that be ye perfect, therefore, the way your Father in heaven is perfect. By perfection, though, Wesley did not mean moral flawlessness or sinlessness. He meant perfection in the sense of growing up and being mature in your relationship with God. Wesley believed that we could become perfect in love in this life. If Jesus invites us to seek perfection, then I just believe that he will give us the tools necessary to obtain it. He didn't mean we would be free from mistakes or temptation or failure. For Wesley, growing as a Christian is all about being filled with love, which happens by the grace of God. We may not be there yet, but you know, we Methodists always say we're on the road to perfection. So someday we believe that we'll get there, but until then, we have some cleaning up to do. Then Jesus moves to another kingdom virtue. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We've all known peacemakers in our lives. They're the ones that jump into a fight that wasn't theirs and try to settle a dispute. But Christ is not talking about that kind of peacemaker, an arbiter of quarrels. Why else would Jesus put us through such rigorous training as these beatitudes? Our whole apprenticeship depends on the concept of peace and prepares us to diffuse a tall mood of upheaval and pandemonium. We earth citizens, we just don't seek peace between people, but we want to see people have peace with God. Our whole life, the way we act, the way we gather, the way we treat people, even when we're in Walmart, is a signal that we are people who have peace with God. And if you want peace with God, God can give it to you the way he gave it to me. We are a visible image of their father, of Jesus' father, and we seek to obey him. Then Jesus moves to the last beatitude, and this one for me, it's the hardest one of all. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you mean the crowning achievement from God of everything that I must achieve in those seven prior Beatitudes is persecution? <laughs> to me, <laughs> that's a stark contrast to the reward that I want. If I'm going to go through all the stuff uh, that evil chases me through, I want more than to be persecuted as a blessing. Shouldn't I live a life in righteousness? If I do, shouldn't I reap some other reward other than persecution and punishment? Until now, the Beatitudes were painted kind of rosy. You know, I'm like, I can, I can do that. That's not a problem. God's people, I can be humble. I can be obedient. I can be faithful. But now comes our reward, persecution. It's time to face the reality, friends. Jesus is not calling us to dominion and honor and victory as earth people measures it. He's calling us to sacrifice and suffering. His own crown was 
first to be twisted into thorns, and our crown must be no different. And yet, even this faith is blessed. You ask, how can this be? How can persecution be a blessing? When we suffer for righteousness sake, when we suffer for Christ, our spirit is elevated to joy through the supply of strength and sweet intimacy of the communion of Christ with us and the Holy Spirit thundering in our lives. In this persecution becomes a way that God blesses us with God's power and God's presence. I heard Jesus say, my brothers and sisters, loud and clear, yes, do this for me. I bore all the sins of the whole world. I even died because my father saw you as a precious jewel and wanted to spend eternity with you. Jesus spoke from his Sinai position in Galilee to thousands seeking something different from the life they knew. And as he spoke, there were among them a noble army of martyrs, martyrs, earth kingdom citizens who rose before him as he spoke, willing to follow where he would lead. They embraced a new life of poverty of the spirit and willing to put on the mantle of service and sacrifice. Of their sacrifice, one of Christ's later followers would say this, bear you one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Is that us, Calvary? How is our beatitude? Are we feeling blessed to be a Christian? Blessed to do the Master's will? Are we carrying our cross while we await the crown? Friends of God, it's in, we are, Jesus is in the life-changing business. He's in the business of changing minds and hearts. We Christians, too, are in the life-changing business. So, Calvary, are we motivated by the love of God? Are we anointed by the Spirit of God, guided by the hand of God, directed by the wisdom of God, fulfilled by the will of God, saturated by the joy of God, blessed by the touch of God, devoted by the glory of God? If you are, then you are one of God's followers, one of the kingdom's citizens, members of a society ruled by God. But I came to tell you today, if you're not, there's room at the cross for one more. If it's not you, maybe somebody in your home, maybe somebody on your block, somebody on your job, they're fighting the fight all by themselves. They're trying to negotiate pandemics and health care insurance and high mortgage rates and $8 two-by-fours all by themselves. Friends, if you know such a person, invite them to come to a relationship that will reward them with eternity and a strength that can only be found in God. My brothers and sisters, at this point, I almost want to give an altar call, but I'm a minute and 33 seconds over. <laughs> but I, I do want to say to you, if you feel a nudge of God calling you to specific service, 
I'll be around after the service. Laurie will be around. Nancy will be around. If you feel called and you're not a part of a church or you know somebody that wants to be part of a community that loves God first, come talk to us. Because the kingdom of God will win. We survived the pandemic. We survived world wars. We survived by the grace of God.